0: Trouble drum, Beat out old trouble on the drum, and kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum, beat me that rhythm on the drum, beat me that rhythm on the drum, and kick all trouble out the door. Kick him out the door.
1: Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscano. The program is podcast and the world's greatest producer, Kelly Whitworth, has put her hand into a different barrel today. She's gone to the 3CR barrel and put pulled out the Madonna of Melbourne. Ayan Showa, how are you?
2: I'm good. Wow, that's a really lovely introduction. Thank you.
1: Well, you're a very lovely person. I mean, you know, there's, now the station's in lockdown, this is very strange. This is like a, a three-way relationship. Kelly's on one side of the glass panel, I'm on the other side, and you're in another studio at 3CR, so we're, uh, very strange, but that's the way it goes. Mm-hmm. Now, look, this is a very simple chat. It only goes on for an hour, and it's all about you. Okay. It's just an hour? Okay. Just, oh, Yeah, I know, I know. We're only going to scratch the surface. I understand that. But I know a woman who's been on the planet for as long as you have, we need three or four hours. But we'll just have to condense it in an hour. Now, what year were you born?
2: 1985.
1: You're just a youngster. Uh,
2: it depends who's asking. <laughs>
1: oh, it does. Well, compared to me, you're a youngster. Maybe not compared to Kelly and our <laughs> listeners. Now... 1985. Do I I detect a faint accent there?
2: Yes. So I was born in Somalia, so my background is Somali.
1: You were born in Somalia. How long were you there for?
2: So I was there until I was six, Mm -hmm. and then we left because of the war, and then I was in Kenya for a year, and then I came to Australia when I was seven.
1: Mm. Do you have any recollections of life in Somalia?
2: I do, but it's very, like, it's not vivid. It's just kind of like snapshots of Somalia. Um, and most of the memories have also been filled out by my family as well.
3: Mm. So
2: sometimes I think, is it my memory or is it, is it a memory that was planted into my head? Um, so I remember, I remember just being around a lot of people. So... We lived near cousins. We lived near relatives. Everyone knew each other. So I just remember seeing a lot of faces, people coming in inside the house, leaving. You know, it was like an open door policy. Um, I also remember, I also remember just feeling safe and not thinking about. Like I never really thought about myself. if that makes sense, where here, as soon as I came to Australia, I had to think about my blackness, but Mm -hmm. there I was just a yarn. And the only thing I had to worry about was just, you know, playing outside. That was the extent of my concerns. So, yeah, I remember feeling at peace, safe, Mm. loved. So it's more feelings as opposed to, um, Mm. yeah, events.
1: You said this, you're part of an extended family, but your own family, many brothers and sisters?
2: I have two sisters. Right. I have two younger sisters. I'm the oldest in my family.
1: Hmm. Do you remember the the day or the week that your parents said we, we have to leave?
2: Actually, it's interesting you ask, because uh, a few weeks ago I was having the same conversation about how it unfolded. So apparently my mother was the only one who sensed something wasn't right. So she sort of had an idea that things were going to change. And that. Um, so I remember, well, I was told that my mom kind of tried to get everybody to leave, but nobody would listen. I think everyone just thought this like conflict would be a passing stage. Mm-hmm. But then my mom grabbed me, my, uh, my other sister. The third one was born in Australia. So she grabbed me, my sister, and my grandmother, and we fled. And then we left everybody behind, our cousins, our aunties and uncles. Um, and then a war broke out, a civil war. And thankfully, a bunch of people were able to leave as well. So a few cousins a few aunties' uncles, but most of the most of the other relatives were stuck
1: um, so that's yeah. that's an extraordinarily powerful image I mean I assume your mother's never left Somalia had she uh,
2: she had, so had she my, in yeah, so my mom studied in Germany and Italy when she was around eighteen mm. um, she won a scholarship. <laughs> From a, it was like a socialist program. She yes. tells me. Mm-hmm. So we had some sort of relationship with Russia, where they would um, give scholarships to like the brightest students to go study mm-hmm. um, in Russia and, and Germany and so on. Um, so she was overseas for a bit, but yeah, after that she she came back to Somalia once she finished her studies.
1: And what, what was she studying?
2: I actually do not remember. I, right. I don't think I asked her. I think it's still a sore spot. In my in my family there's certain things, um, that we don't talk about, so we don't talk about anything before we came to Australia.
1: Right. Right. I assume that's a survival mechanism. Mm.
2: I think so. I've tried but mm. she's you know, she doesn't I think I think it's a yeah, I think it's a painful spot for her, but her justification is that happened in the past. There's no point of bringing it up now.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah, just don't look back. It's a great philosophy. It's my philosophy in life. So maybe I've got a lot in common with your mum. Because <laughs> that's my philosophy. Don't look back. You just can't change what's happened. Mm. Yeah. Now, do you actually remember fleeing? How did you get out of Somalia?
2: <sighs> I remember being on a bus, so... Um, Again, I was having a conversation with my mom recently and um, I was like, I don't think anybody drove. I don't remember anybody driving. I don't remember us having a car, but I do remember being on a bus and I remember us stopping once like uh, a couple of times during the trip and then sleeping outside. Um, And she, my mom filled in my memory and she was like, yeah, you know, a bus picked us up. And it took all the families that were fleeing, and then we all slept outside, kind of hid, like, far into the distance so we wouldn't be caught by, um, yeah, soldiers. And that's all I remember from that. My memory gets better when we arrive in Kenya. Hmm. So once we arrive in Kenya, we had a family sponsor us to come to Australia.
1: Now, let's get get back to Kenya. When you arrived at the border, did you have papers, or did you, you just accept it? Oh. I'm,
2: I'm, I'm not. I'm really, really not sure. Mm. But I know that in Kenya it wasn't safe, so I know that we had to hide um, a number of times because at that time there were a lot of Somalis who were coming into Kenya, and I think there was a problem. There was just too many of us, and. Um, A lot of us didn't use the proper channels, and I'm using air quotes. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of the time we had to hide how many people were in the house. So some people would hide in the shower, or some people would leave the house when police would come and check. Um, Mm. But, yeah, that's all all I remember is playing outside and then being told to hide once in a while. But it wasn't, I I don't remember that, I don't, see that memory as being painful it was just things that were happening at that time Mm.
1: Going back to the civil war obviously at six you wouldn't have known what was going on but now have you got any ideas why it all kind of unfolded so quickly
3: (sighs) that's a thing
2: i actually don't um i've thought about doing my own research But because I came here at such a young age, I don't have that same connection that my mother has to Somalia, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. Um, But I know a civil war broke out. I know that a lot of people assumed that it would be something temporary um, and that things would go back to normal. And then there were those families like mine who who sensed that, you know, this could take longer than um, we were made to believe. And those families were the lucky ones. They were the ones who were able to escape to the US and the UK. And unfortunately, the ones who thought that Somalia would, would you know, go back to being that um, prosperous country, stayed behind, and a lot of them ended up in refugee camps or being unable to get visas to leave the country.
3: Yeah.
1: Did your mother speak Italian?
2: Yeah, she still does. She
1: speaks, does she? Yeah.
2: <laughs> she speaks really good Italian, yeah. I
1: thought she would, yeah, because Somalia was an Italian colony for a long time. Hmm. Yeah. So, given my regards, I should speak, I should say something in Italian to her. <laughs> Dici a tomatrica, so e bellissimo ragazza.
2: See, I only understood bellissimo. That means beautiful,
1: does it? That's right, yeah. I, said, right. I, I, I said, I said, I congratulated your mother on having such a wonderful daughter.
2: Oh, that's
1: so kind of you to say, <laughs> Always with a compliment. <laughs> uh, only those who deserve them, and obviously considering your early life, you, you deserve a medal. Is not a compliment, especially your mum. I, I just I think it's just extraordinary. You're living there for so long, and all of a sudden, you feel things aren't right, and you just pluck your kids and you run for the border. And you know, and, yeah. and the fact that she was right that's, 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 that's the extraordinary thing.
2: And everyone made fun of her. My mum tells me that mm. everyone thought she was like crazy, and that she was like, you know. Uh, that she wasn't patriotic and Mm. yeah like it wasn't easy to flee do you know what i mean Mm. she was up against the community and even her own family who were against the idea of her leaving So, kudos to her for Mm. yeah for pushing through
1: was it was it a kind of a traditional family structure or
2: um in a way so in my in my household in somalia It was my immediate family, so mom, dad, siblings. Mm -hmm. But then we also had my grandmother who lived there and, like, the single aunties. So the aunties that hadn't been married, um, they would come and live with us occasionally and help my mother out. Mm -hmm. But then we had our uncle and aunties who lived right next door. So sometimes I don't even remember who lived where because we were just in and out of each other's houses. Um, but I did live with my immediate family that much I recall
1: mm. so who who actually of your immediate family who got to Kenya?
2: So it was my mom and my myself and my sister.
1: And so what happened to your grandma and your and your dad?
2: Uh, my grandmother ended up coming afterwards. Um, my dad stayed behind. Mm. Um, I think he wanted to stay around just because I think he thought maybe it wasn't as serious or... I still don't know because it's still obviously a sore topic.
3: Oh ah, um, yes, I can understand. But I know I don't he want to never...
2: Mm. No, 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 that's totally fine. It's just he never ended up coming with us. He never came to Australia. He stayed back in Somalia. Mm.
1: So when was the first time you heard the word Australia, that you were going to Australia from Kenya?
2: question. Um, I don't remember hearing the word Australia. Actually, what I do remember is watching Neighbours in Kenya, Ooh. in the hotel lobby, <laughs> and my mom translating to us. Uh, um, yeah, she tells us that we used to watch Neighbours, and oh, as kids, we don't know what's happening, so we obviously make things up. And the things that we couldn't make up, my mom would, would tell us. But I remember watching Neighbours. But I never, like, considered where is this show from, like what country, that kind of Mm. thing. But then when I came to Australia, and I was like, hey, I remember this show from Kenya.
1: Mm. Yeah. All right. Obviously, you flew to Australia. Do you remember the plane trip?
2: Yeah. So I actually remember, even what I was wearing, I had this, like, big, like, puffer jacket. And I remember, because when we left Somalia Kenya sorry we left with relatives so my mom stayed behind she didn't leave with us on the first plane Um, I just remember saying goodbye to her in the terminal and thinking that we were maybe going back to Somalia I don't I realized we were going or how long we were leaving and I remember her crying and my dad trying to console her and I still I, I recall at that time thinking, why is mom crying? Like, what's the big deal? Um, and then being on the plane and all of us being sick, I remember all of us vomiting. <laughs> I, I still don't know why. Um, we were mm. really sick. And then after that, uh, my mom ended up coming two years later to Australia.
3: Let's
1: get back to the plane journey because we've got we got, we got 56 minutes, so just relax. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot, look, I don't think a lot of Australians actually understand how difficult the asylum seeker refugee story is and that's why I'm concentrating on this at the minute. So on the plane, have you ever been on a plane before? No. 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 So, so we came to Kenya by boat. So so what did you what did you think? Here you are a little girl, what six on a plane? With relatives, your mum's not there, yeah. your dad's not there?
2: honest i don't know if i blocked that memory out but i don't remember exactly what i was thinking i just remember everything looked very white like just the the lights of the plane was different to the lights back in kenya i just remember you know looking around and thinking oh this is odd but what for me what stuck out was us being sick and us kind of being very quiet we mm-hmm. were really quiet and sick that's, that's the extent
3: of my memory, unfortunately. Right.
1: That's all right. So you arrive in the land of milk and honey. Obviously, going through all the airport, the passport and all that stuff is kind of... Can you tell me what you felt when the airport doors opened and you first saw Australia?
2: I remember seeing relatives, but I didn't know who they were. I was just told... That's your auntie and that's your uncle because there were a few family members who got to Australia before us, Mm -hmm. maybe a couple of months before us. And I just remember everything was really loud, just everything was loud and bright and I didn't really have time to absorb all that was happening. So we had all these people hugging us and kissing us and I remember going, wait, what's going on, you know, and no one really (laughs) answering us. (laughs) But because we were so well behaved, none of us asked questions. You know, none of us said, hey, what's happening? You know, where are we? We just mm, kind of, mm. you know, did what we were told and hugged at the relatives. And, you know, we were really good kids. That's, that's all I remember. And do, you,
1: do you reckon all Australian kids should spend a year in Somalia? So, I mean, I know my grandkids are a bit of a handful. If I sent them to Somalia for a year, do you think they'd come back and be good? Ah. Uh,
2: Probably, (laughs) probably, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not too sure, I feel like the kids down here, the Somali kids who are born here, are pretty well behaved, because we have a thing where we respect elders, so Mm -hmm. we're supposed to, you know, give them a lot of um, reverence, like you don't interrupt them when they're talking, you you only speak when you're spoken to, that kind of attitude.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: So do you remember your first night in an Australian bed?
2: I remember being in bunk beds and mm-hmm. I was told that it was kind of like a, like a hostel for refugees, mm-hmm. which is odd because we had relatives there, but the first night we stayed in a hostel and I just remember bunk beds and just lots of noise. And our our family, so there was like five of us being right next to each other, so sharing bunk beds. And um, I just remember families going in and out. Like I think there was a lot of Muslims there because I remember seeing hijabs, like headscarves. Um, But, yeah, it, it still, I don't think it clicked to me what was happening. I think I just thought this is the next stop of the adventure or this is the next stop. I even thought about my mother, unfortunately. I think I was just kind of like, oh, okay,
3: what now? What now? Well, that's, well, you know,
1: typical kid. What now? Forget about your parents. (laughs) Uh, I know, yeah, I know the feeling quite well. (laughs) So where did you end up eventually?
2: So we ended up in Reservoir, actually. Ah, (laughs) good old Reservoir. Yeah.
1: 92 in (sighs) Reservoir. Obviously, you weren't involved in the Reservoir-Reservoir debate in those days, were you? Never even
3: heard
1: of it. What, you haven't heard of the Reservoir-Reservoir debate?
3: No. Oh,
1: (laughs) Ayan, Ayan, what can I say? Listen, if it's not, what was it?
2: Tell me. I I actually...
1: Well, there's there's the people who live in Reservoir, right, which is you lot... And there's other s- people who live on the south side of the Yarra who think reservoir is reservoir. So it's a class difference, darling. Oh,
2: right. same <laughs> suburb, just divided, segregated by. Yes. Okay.
1: And, oh. Ah, and you live there. How long did you live there for?
2: Um. So we lived there until '94, and there was like ten of us in. Wait, I think more than ten. I think ten in two bedrooms so we had two bedrooms and the living room was used as a bedroom as well
1: right. so when did your mum turn up
2: 94 so when we moved to Dee park mm-hmm. so in 94 we moved to D park is when she came and she came with a big stomach and Oops. i remember going who the hell is this person <laughs> i she looks familiar but what is that thing protruding from her Aesthetic, stomach
3: right.
2: and that was my baby sister who i love and adore mm. um and then she was carrying a vcr
1: <laughs> carrying a vcr
2: a vcr yeah. i remember specifically her a vcr that we had until like 98
1: Right. Um, yeah. fair enough you know you i got...
2: asked her i was like why why did you have a vcr and apparently, she thought that Australia wouldn't have the kind of VCRs that she liked. Right. <laughs> so she brought her with her.
1: Her own VCR. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Okay. So, India Park, was it just your mum and your three sisters?
2: So it was my mum, my two sisters, mm. my auntie, and my three cousins, and my grandmother. Right. So there was like six of us, six or seven.
1: So, obviously, you went to school at, what, Reservoir Primary School? or?
2: So, Reservoir, I didn't go to school. I went to, I started school in Deer Park. So. Yeah,
1: Deer Park.
2: Sorry, Deer Park was 93. I'm so sorry. Deer Park was 93.
1: So, you yes. went from Reservoir to Deer Park. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And did you have any English at that stage, or were you just thrown into school like I was and didn't know a word of English?
3: Absolutely. You
2: just, like, I remember starting from grade one. I think grade grade one, so I I hadn't done prep or childcare or kinder. I went straight to one, and um, I remember feeling very lonely. That's all I remember. I didn't have any friends. I couldn't speak a lick of English. I still remember when I needed to go to the toilet, I used to say, I'm a toilet, and the teacher, and the kids would laugh, and the teacher would say, Ayan, you mean you want to go to the toilet, please? And I'd say, yeah, I'm a toilet. (laughs) I still remember that, and
3: um, Ah, so,
1: yeah. Did they, uh, in my era, and I went to school in the mid-50s, that's how old I am, but I don't, I don't, I don't expect you're going to respect me obviously i mean you know you've got to earn a person's respect you know not because you're just old there's a lot of horrible old people you know that but (laughs) um i remember we used to be put at the back of the class because they couldn't be bothered teaching us anything is that what happened to you or did they put you at the front
2: I actually don't remember where they placed me. I think I was right in the middle of uh, things. It's that's lovely. Um, but I remember one teacher took a particular interest to me and my, um, uh, my sister and my cousins. He was really nice, and he, he went out of his way to support us, so mm-hmm. there were things that we didn't understand. Like, he even visited our house and, and um, would speak to my auntie about our progress, that kind of thing. I forgot his name. He wore glasses. Mm. Nice guy. Mm. Um, but he was the only teacher who I feel like actually cared. Because um, the other teachers just assumed we would sort of learn on our own. But I think he understood that we needed extra support. So he went out of his way to give that extra support. Um,
1: yeah, it'd be a bit different now. But uh, you're quite right. It was integration has always been very hard. So did you finish primary school at Deer Park or did you move from one to another? Uh,
2: So I went to a Muslim school. I I Mm
3: -hmm.
2: went to a Muslim school in 94, in grade 2. And that was another um, lonely period, only because everyone had started school together in grade prep. We were Somali. I think we were one of the only black students there. Everyone was Muslim, but we were the only African Muslims, Mm -hmm. Um, us and maybe two other families. And uh, yeah, so I just remember being very alone until I got to grade three. Mm. And that's when I met a few other kids who were from an African background and that completely changed things for me. Why? Um... We spoke the same language. Um, There was that immediate connection.
1: So you you speak Arabic, do
0: you? Uh,
2: No, so they were African and they spoke... They were Somali, so my background is Somali. We both spoke the same language. And the other kids who weren't Somali but were African, there was that... It's hard to describe. There was that kind of recognition Mm -hmm. that we were one of the only ones at that school and we immediately bonded... um, yeah, and it was yeah. It was it was the highlight of my experience <laughs> at that school.
1: <laughs> so, you did your whole um primary at the Muslim um, primary school?
2: Yeah, did my entire primary there and then I left in year 8.
1: Right. You left. Mm. You disappeared. Where did you go?
2: Um me and a few friends, we all left at the same time because the school just it was a it was an interesting school. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a school that's received a lot of like public attention, so I don't want to...
1: No, you don't want to use the name. Yeah. No. It, it, didn't, so, it didn't go bankrupt, did it?
2: No, no, no not bankrupt. It should have. It should have <laughs> closed down, in my opinion. But, <laughs>
3: right.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so we all left, and then it was my first time going to a public school, um, and then it was another round of being the only one, like there weren't that many Muslim students, Mm -hmm. and we started when September 11th happened, Um, so it was just like starting a brand new school, you're the only one wearing a headscarf, because at that time I wore a headscarf, you're the only one wearing a skirt, you're one of the only other African students, and then September 11th happens, and it was just, yeah, it was interesting, it just feels like every time I settle in, I moved away, and then I've got to start all over again.
1: Right. So how how did it affect you at school?
2: Um, It just, it's, I don't know. Like, friendships became very hard for me. Um, I struggled to fit in only because I was taken out. So when I left Werribee, I had known everybody. I had gone to school with them since grade two. Mm -hmm. We all um, were from the same faith. And then I go to a public school where the kids, you know, the behavior was different. Like, they could speak back to the teachers. I remember marveling at that going, wow, you can say that to a teacher? And you don't get smacked? Because we used to get hit all the time. Teachers used to Mm -hmm. hit us. And I thought that was very normal. And so when we would see kids speaking back to teachers and Throwing things around and not being, you know, not getting into a lot of trouble. I was like, "Where am I?" It, it felt like the jungle, to be honest. And,
1: um, <laughs> so, so, I what, what, so what did you prefer, the jungle or being hit?
2: Um, actually, I, I prefer not to be hit. Definitely <laughs> not to be hit. Um, but it's it's just odd, like teach kids being that disruptive. I found that very weird. But I also became disruptive.
3: Um, <laughs>
2: right. so yeah I mean now I don't see it as disruptive a young adult sees it as you know kids um, exercising their rights and autonomy that I get but at the time right. it was a whole new world for me
1: so did you finish high school
2: yeah I finished high school in Gilmore Girls so in Footscray I went to a girls school
1: right what well- are these choices you made or your mum made for you
2: so I left Northgate because um, I was struggling to fit in and I was you know I missed out a good chunk of year nine mm-hmm. um, and Gilmore girls was the only school that would take me without making me a repeat other schools thought because I missed out on so many days that I'd have to repeat and Gilmore girls took that chance on me and said look, We understand what happened. We're going to give you this whole term to prove that you can um, adapt to year 10. And I proved that, and then they let me finish the rest of the year.
1: Hmm. So could you tell us, so was it a happy time at Gilmore Girls?
2: It was. um, Like, I loved Gilmore Girls. It was one of the most comfortable schools. Um, There was a lot of fighting, but, you know... that was not an issue but I remember it was a very multicultural school we had a lot of kids who were from a Pacifica background African kids there were a lot of like Macedonian kids Italians Greeks Um, yeah and the teachers the teachers were okay Um, the education was all right but I felt very safe even when I first started and I didn't have friends I still felt safe enough and comfortable enough to, to, uh, you know, continue with my studies. Um, And I never had that in other schools.
1: Mm. So you um, finished Year 12?
2: Yeah, I wrapped up uh, Year 12 in Gilmore Girls, yeah.
1: Excellent. Now, we're going to do something which you, as a 3CR presenter, is very familiar with. We're going to do a station ID, Ayaan. We love that. Yeah, we do. We're listening to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3CR.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3CR.org.au. I'm Joseph Toscano. The producer is Kerry Whitlock. And we... (laughs) That's our little joke. I have Kelly. See, I call it Kerry. You know why? She's got a mythical twin sister. No. The key is mythical. (laughs)
2: Please
1: don't. No, it's Kelly. (laughs) But I I had to get something to stop her sleeping, you know. I had to do something.
2: (laughs) No. (laughs) Kelly's one of my favourite 3CR people.
1: So I have
2: to go and defend my sister in radio.
1: Yeah, look, you can defend her as much as you like, but I'm actually speaking about Kerry, her twin sister, right?
2: Oh, oh. <laughs> listen, I missed that joke. I apologise.
1: <laughs> it's, it's like the reservoir reservoir joke. It's okay. okay. It's okay. Once you've been here 50 years, you'll pick it up. All right, now, Ayan. So what happens after grade 12? Uh, I
2: did uni, so I... Whoops,
1: um, you did uni.
2: I mean, I didn't finish. I attempted to do uni, um...
1: Where would you go? Uh,
2: initially, I went to Swinburne in Lilydale, right? Which was very far, and then
1: that's a two-hour trip by public transport.
2: Uh, actually, believe it or not, it was an hour and a bit. So oh, really, that's good. Yeah, so
1: that was on the train, I see.
2: Yeah, because I live in the city, and mm. it was just I would walk to the train station, and then it would be mm. one. Like one train all the way to Lilydale and a, a bit of a walk, like a five minute walk. So I did that. Uh, let's, for,
1: let's get back to Lilydale because I, I, okay. s- I spend my Monday afternoons in Lilydale. I won't tell you why. It's part of my job. So, what do you think of Lilydale? Uh,
2: it was very white. It was very. It still is. <laughs> is it still, of course? <laughs> it takes a while to change. But, yeah, I remember just going, oh, this is interesting, because I grew up in the city. And the city is still white, don't get me wrong, but it was a different group of white people. Um, So I was like, oh, this is different. Um, I actually don't remember my classes at all. It just felt like a daze, because I had no one to tell me about how uni worked, so I didn't understand how to apply for an elective, like how to choose electives or the importance of electives. Um, I remember feeling like I was out of my depth and I was the first person to go to uni in my family Um, and all my friends were the first in their families as well so we didn't have anyone to kind of guide us Mm. so we were learning just by feeling and by, you know... See, what, By failing as well.
1: What year was this?
2: Uh, this was 2005.
1: You'd think they'd be better organised, wouldn't you? 2005.
2: Yeah, I think there was a lot of assumption that students would know or students would be able to adapt. Mm. Um, and I remember going there and there were a lot of first year students who had family with them, cousins, friends. I went there on my own. So for me, it was kind of like, where the hell do I go now?
1: Hmm. Um, but yeah, maybe it's changed. No, look, um, I understand the situation. I remember I, um, when I was five, we were lived about, what, seven, eight kilometres from the school. And I got picked up on the bus, and I'm thinking to myself, the bus is empty, but didn't speak much English. I didn't worry about it. I got to the school, and the school was off on a holiday. <laughs> And then I had to walk back. I walked back home. This was in the mid fifties. It was, you know, that's what you expected to do in those days. But I'm just saying, it's the same thing. Because, because you're not part of that cultural, you haven't got that cultural upbringing. No. But there's the expectation that you do. You may be able to speak some English, but you just don't have that cultural background. It's the same experience that, you know, you had at university, you know. It's, and it's a very common experience among people who come here from overseas.
2: And with UNI, it's very much you put in what you want to put in and the faculty, they very, they will support you, but you need to reach out and you need to know the support that you need. And if you don't know that, then you struggle. And that was my experience.
1: And I think also that the different coalition governments had basically destroyed the... Um The university unions and they used to do that type of work in the 80s and 90s. I remember that quite clearly, but uh, Mm. they'd be legislated out of existence. So, what happens when you fail? What do you, what, you're 20 and you failed uni?
2: Yeah, I failed uni, and my mum wasn't too happy Mm. because for my mum, she didn't have the same opportunities, but she did really well. So, for her, her mindset was. You have all these things going for you, you know, you have, you can study with your, with lights, you have a computer at home, you can speak the language, why is it difficult for you to, to, yeah, to do the, um, but I don't think she ever considered all the other problems about fitting in. I don't think she even saw it as a big deal. For her, it was like, go there, do the work, forget about friends, forget about fitting in. Where for me, that was my concern, but,
3: um, but,
1: but she would have lived in did she live in a closed Somalian community in Melbourne?
2: yeah uh, yeah, so that's the, the difference, difference is, isn't it yeah. yeah everyone looks like her, and you know she worked at a um, she worked at Ames, so the Australian I forgot what they call Australian Multicultural yeah. educational services. Mm-hmm. she was a bilingual officer. So for my mom, she was able. She was always able to get jobs. Was able, Was always able to to um, manage stress, manage changes. Where for me, I always struggled. My mom's a, My mom's very much a survivor, and I don't have that instinct. So
1: hey, look, I keep telling you, Ayan, you should take that leaf out of our book, your mother's book <laughs> and my book. Don't look back.
2: I'm slowly getting there
3: over time.
1: You'll get there. You'll get there. So what does a young person who's kind of failed Mm. university Mm. in her mother's eyes, what do you do?
2: Um, I think that exacerbated my anxiety and I remember falling into like a deep, deep depression. Mm -hmm. Um, My first experience of depression actually was in high school and I remember my welfare teacher noticing the changes and it was my welfare teacher who realized that perhaps I could be depressed and she asked my mother's permission to take me to see someone um, so shout out to her I forget that teacher's name but she saw something wasn't quite right and I was able to get that support and then that's how I was able to finish high school and then when I got to uni I went back to that place. And I didn't get the support I needed because I think with my mother, she sort of thought, I thought this situation was over. I think in her mind, at that time at least, it was very much, I was depressed, I got better, that's the end of it, rather than it's something I have to live with and manage. Um, yes, yeah, so I fell into a deep depression for a couple of years, did odd jobs here and there, um, and felt like a huge failure um, in my mother's eyes, because I respect her, as I've said, and um, I knew that I wasn't making the most of my talents or the most of my capabilities. Um, And thankfully, she didn't give me a hard time, but it was this unspoken sense of, you know, your potential, you're, you're putting your potential to waste, and that is very hard because you're already dealing with with so much things. You know, being an adult, starting university for the first time, you know, experiencing the joys and the um, struggles of adulthood. And then you've got the expectations of the community. Then you've got the expectations of your mother, mm. your own expectations. So it was a lot to deal with.
3: Yeah, I,
1: I think that's something people don't understand, that if you're a migrant or a refugee or an asylum seeker, it's not just the expectations of your family, it's the expectations of your community because they see your failure as a collective failure.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I get it because a lot of them came to this country because they had no choice and they're making the best of their circumstances. We're the next generation and we're considered the lucky generation. So when we don't succeed, we're, we're seen as... Um, kind of putting all their hard work to waste. It's sort of like, why did I bring you to this country? And look how hard I struggled only for you to spit it back in my face. Um, I think mm. over time now, parents have gotten better and wiser, but maybe 15 years ago, that wasn't the case. It was a bit of, mm. you know, yeah, well they, what they, you're doing with your life.
1: They right? had, look, it's been going on for generations with different waves of migration. Absolutely. people people uh, what happens is we're basically the infantry they've settled in and they're kind of you know they're a bit Australian, a bit Italian, a bit wherever they come from, and they kind of are uh, kind of in a little cocoon of their own making most people in that situation with their own community but it's the children that go out there who have to interact with the wider world and we have to make our way and it can be exceptionally painful and difficult, as you said. So how did you get
3: out of this?
2: I was able to find people who were in a similar boat, so um, young Somalis who also felt like, you know, failures, quote-unquote failures in the eyes of their family and community and we bonded and I think that for me changed my mindset and made me realize that what I was going through was very difficult and that I should not you know beat myself over things that are out of my control so just meeting people and having that those kind of conversations and learning from them as well learning from people that be older than me and um you know I, I had few mentors so that was nice I think that changed that meeting people I could relate to and who understood my struggle
1: and how did that change your life practically
2: um it didn't change it drastically but it did change um the anxiety that I had that I wasn't good enough um so for me that was a huge relief realizing you know, just because I'm not going to uni does not mean I'm, you know, somehow that I'm not good enough. I think once I realized that, then I was able to take it easy and to, you know, let life come at me.
1: Mm-hmm. And did that lead to anything or did you go back to uni or yeah. education?
2: So I did go back to uni. Um, it took me five years to finish a three-year course. <laughs> um
1: some people take twelve, that's fine.
2: <laughs> Listen, I've heard all the stories, so I, I I totally get it. See there's that pipe there's that there's that there's that voice, there's my mother's voice of five years. Really? <laughs> but yeah, so I finished in two thousand and fifteen, which was nice.
1: What what degree did you finish with?
2: It was a Bachelor of Legal and Dispute Studies.
1: Yeah, but you're not a bachelor, you're a spinster.
2: Uh,
1: what's that? Uh, Spinster as in like a single woman? Yes. Oh, That's the joke. That's another one of those don't cultural me tell jokes. You. Your jokes are killing me today. Uh, No, it's all right. Now, they say you you become a Bachelor of Economics or a Bachelor of this. When I graduated initially, it was a Bachelor of Medicine, which is all right. But I wasn't a Bachelor then. (laughs) fine. And then you you become a Master of something. I think, well, how about a Mistress of Economics instead of a Master of Economics?
2: i mean. Look, it has a better ring to it. Let me tell you.
1: Yeah, and it's only it's only when you get a, a doctorate that you know it's you're all equal, you know. <laughs> none, Absolutely. None this. So, did that lead on to anything?
2: Ah, uh, no. So <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't even remember what I studied or oh, look or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. I think I did that more um, just kind of to prove to people that it can be done. So I finished that. Um. But, yeah, so I did a bit of, like, community work, so um, supporting people who are, like, new to Australia, like, with settlement, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a bit of, bit of, like, project work, project assistant, so just bits and pieces, um, yeah, and then I joined 3CR, and that has completely changed my world, so I've had to rethink the way I do things and the
1: way I live and that, and that sort of thing. Mm, yes, we are a corrupter of youth.
2: <laughs> you really have. You took a little poor Somali girl yes. and you, yeah. You're you know, blaming that, me just, personally. You're, blam- person.
1: You're blaming me for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm,
2: blaming, I'm blaming the collective, this entire family.
1: Yeah, look, I, uh, I uh, met a, a woman a few years ago who's, who's now in her fifties. has been listening to one of my programs since she was 15. And she blamed me personally for putting her on the radical path. Wow. That's the
2: thing at Free C R people start, you know, once you join this
1: Uh, like group
2: of misfits, it's kind of hard to leave.
1: Excuse me, the rest of the world are the misfits. We're the only normal ones. Okay. Get it right. (laughs) We're the sane ones. We're the sane people in insane world.
3: Mm hmm.
1: so. I'm interested in something you said. we'll talk about your free CR thing in a minute. But I'm interested in something you said at the very beginning. You said you didn't wear hajib. Hij- you did as a youngster, but you don't wear now. Is there any particular reason you made that decision? Oh.
2: Um, well, when I first started wearing it, I didn't have a choice in wearing it. No. So I went to a Muslim school, and then where I grew up, everyone around me was Somali or was from a Muslim background. So we all wore it, and... I was never forced by my mother. It was just more as a way to fit in with the people I was hanging out with. And then I got to year 11 and I was like, oh, let me just try taking it off. And I took it off. And for whatever reason, I never put it back on. So, unfortunately, no grand statement. It was just something
3: no, no, I
2: decided true. and yeah. then I never yeah. went back to.
1: Yeah, well, most people, it's not a grand statement. It's just something that happens as you, as you grow
3: older.
2: But you'd be surprised. I think sometimes people assume that there's some sort of big story like, oh, I threw off the shackles of my hijab (laughs) and now I'm a liberated Westerner.
3: Nothing
1: like that. No, no, no. You're right. I've I've got a a number of Muslim women friends and, you know, some wear, some don't. And some do it some days and some don't other days, you know. It's just how the mood takes you. Now. So do you, do, you, do you still have a religious faith or is that kind of diluted?
2: Um, I have, like, I'm I'm a practicing Muslim, well, mm. as practicing as can be. Mm. Um, I'm, like, I fast, I try to pray, so Muslims were expected to do, like, these five um, things. So me, I might do two out of the five. Mm. Um, yeah, I still believe it's just, Yeah, for whatever reason, I'm not as practicing
1: as, like, let's say, my sisters or my Mm. mother. Mm. Yeah, my parents were what we call Christmas Christians. Ah. They go to church on Christmas Day and that was it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because there's there's a lot of beauty in the cultural aspect. The cultural traditions are really Mm. fun and and community-oriented, so I can see why people would do that.
1: Mm. What's your... Best Eid present you ever had?
2: See, we never get Eid presents. We have more... I don't think I've ever got an Eid present.
1: You're kidding.
2: No, when we were young, we used to have this thing where you'd go to relatives and then you'd stick your hand out and they'd give you coins. Mm -hmm. Um, So we used to go to... We'd have family barbecues and then you'd go to all the relatives and stick your hand out like Oliver Twist and they'd give you more... (laughs)
1: I think they give you lollies here, but that's all
2: right. No, no. We were too savvy for that. We said, pay.
1: <laughs> pay. Give
2: us 50
3: cents
1: now. Now. Uh, I can understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah give Mammon's become your god, hasn't it? Money. Yeah, yeah, yeah you little kitties, little brats. Mm. <laughs> so when did you find out about 3CR? Um, 2000,
2: 2016. So I found out about 3CR through Areej, Areej Noor, mm-hmm. who used to do a show here. And then I used to come and visit her when she would do her show. And I thought, oh, this is cute. What's this What's this over here? What's happening? And um, And then I started at reception, and then I used to do the phones, and then I would listen to shows, and then I was kind of, inspired i suppose i thought oh, this is interesting and i realized we didn't have a lot of african shows so i was like mm, maybe we need a bit of more african voices so i stepped up and i did a breakfast show
3: oh that's um, tough oh, um,
2: oh let me tell you joe oh, oh it's just never again
1: <laughs> I mean, I, how many months did you last
2: um i started in 2017 and left 2019
1: Two years? Yeah. You're, 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 you're my heroine. That's, that's <laughs> two years on breakfast. Yeah. What
2: I remember interviewing you as well. You I...
1: interviewed me. Yeah, i oh, not
2: you... sure if you remember.
1: Well, I, I'll pretend remember. I did. Was, was, was I rude as normal? Was I polite?
2: No, you were really polite and <laughs> you gave me a lot of good information, good, and, and you were kind. You were very kind. That's what I what I remember. You were very generous with your time.
1: Yeah, I, I can be kind to nice people, but never, never. can I give you a little hint about radio? Nobody's listening, so never be kind to your producer when you get a producer, okay? you, you, you got to make them work because, see, the way it works in radios like this, there are draft horses and show ponies, right? You're a show pony, I'm a show pony, Kelly's a draft horse, she does the work, all right?
2: Yeah, no. <laughs> is that Kelly in the background? I love it. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. Did she train you? Did she?
2: Um, I oh no, mm-hmm. no, not train me. But I remember I met Kelly when I first started, mm. and I remember chatting with her, and I remember thinking, oh, she's really lovely. Um,
3: yeah, she is. Uh, I know it's
1: terrible.
2: <laughs> yeah, and we, we yeah, and we kind of swapped stories about studying and. Yeah, we hit it off since then.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. So, you kind of intimated that you actually moved from breakfast to your own show. Is that correct?
2: Yes. Yeah, so I, started, I started with breakfast and then I moved on to. Actually, I moved on to a national radio program. So, Woman on the Line.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, that's a tough program because they're, they're really. Uh, they do a lot of research and a lot of work into that program. Uh,
2: absolutely. So, there's like. Five broadcasters and each of us take one week so you end up doing a show like once every five weeks which is good because sometimes you need the extra time to research to find guests to you know record edit package the whole show it's a lot um so i did that for a bit and then i took a break and then i created my own show and then i brought on two presenters so I was doing what Kelly was doing. I was looking for people to interview, mm-hmm. panelling, that type right. of thing.
3: Right.
2: Um, and then the people I started with realised that, you know, radio wasn't for them. So now it's just me doing the show. And what's and the
1: show? What's the show?
2: So it's called Diaspora Blues. Mm-hmm. So initially I just wanted to do a show where I can speak to people from my community and to talk about whatever it is that they're interested in or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, That's still the aim. Um, We interview all sorts of people, but I made a point of making sure that the people we do interview have to be either black or from a culturally and linguistically diverse community because they're usually the underrepresented voices. So I thought I would prioritize them.
1: And and when does the show occur?
2: Mondays
1: at two thirty. Two thirty in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Not two thirty in the morning. Goodness, <laughs> never, never, Joe. Right, that's extraordinary. Yeah, you've done you've done extremely well putting up with these misfits here at three CR. I reckon a, a normal person like you, <laughs> you know, having to put up with people like Kelly Whitworth is um, it's just amazing the way you fit it in. Yeah, you, you're trying it too, I understand. Is that correct? Yeah,
2: I'm on the training subcommittee, and I,
1: mm. whenever
2: there's like training um, uh. things that are needed, I step in and uh. support new programmers. Um, I'm currently supporting uh, Tiffany, who does a fantastic show called Daddy Monroe, Strong Spirits, sorry. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I do that Mondays, Mondays, um, so usually when new programmers start at 3CR, they're kind of a bit nervous, which makes sense. So I make myself available if they need support with panelling or if they need to brainstorm questions. or Yeah, I, like I enjoy it. It's my passion. Right. I realized my passion at 33.
1: Well, that's, most people don't actually ever realize their passions. you have done really well. Uh-huh. Now, look, you've done me a great favor, young, You know why? I can now go to my grave happy. You know why? (laughs) Because of people like you at 3CR, I am sure it will continue to exist for another 55 years till the centenary celebrations of 3CR. So it's a pleasure having you on the show. It's a pleasure having you at 3CR. It's great to have young, talented people on this radio station because all us old fuddy-duddies that were you know involved in the beginning of the station in 76, 77, 78. We're all chuffing off to the next world, and it's great to know there are people of your standard doing shows and training and work at 3CR. So uh, as far as you tell your mum, as far as I'm concerned, you are a winner. <laughs> I'm going to make
2: sure she listens
1: to this episode.
3: Yes. <laughs> Thank no.
2: you so much for the opportunity um to you and to especially Kelly for reaching out to me. I was a bit nervous because I'm I'm used to being the one asking the questions, and I also don't like talking about myself. So I said to myself, Ayan, you've got to do this—not just for Kelly, but I think it's important for all of us at 3CR to get to know each other.
1: Well, especially during the two-year lockdown we've been through.
2: Let me tell you. Yes.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much, Ayan Shawa. My
2: pleasure.
0: Every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan.
1: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.